I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Well, let's pray. Let's pray, ask for asking for God's help. Oh, our Father, we, uh, we do long uh, to bear more fruit of the Spirit, uh, that we would become more like your Son. And I pray that you might uh, use this time as we gather around your word uh, uh, to spur us on in that, uh, that by the power of your Spirit you might lift our eyes to our Lord Jesus, uh, that we might be able to increasingly uh, put to death sin in our life, and bear fruit that brings honour and praise to you. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so uh, here we are in the third week of our series on the Holy Spirit. Of course, last week uh, we looked at the topic of experiencing the Spirit. Uh, and this week we're looking at the topic of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the connection being there that if someone, uh, a particular Christian or, or perhaps a church as a whole, uh, is genuinely experiencing God's Spirit, uh, then they'll also be bearing the fruit of God's Spirit, or, or at least they should be. Now, I understand that some of you probably hear that, uh, this whole idea of bearing the fruit of the Spirit, of being changed by the Spirit, being transformed by the Spirit. Uh, and many of you hear that, and it's already uh, a kind of massive guilt trip for you. Uh, you feel quite discouraged. Uh, you feel a little bit burdened. Uh, because for you, uh, it just feels like a massive effort uh, to cling to the Lord Jesus each and every day, just trusting in his grace and mercy to you, uh, let alone this whole idea of being changed and becoming more like Jesus and, and bearing uh, the fruit of the Spirit. That, that's just adding a, a layer of burden to you. I understand that. I, I've felt like that myself as a Christian. Uh, that's why I wanted Sophie to read uh, that first verse from Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 20. That's where I want to start. Uh, really, just to open our eyes, uh, to at least not close the door on the potential for bearing fruit. Right? I think sometimes we can get so discouraged in the Christian life, we think, oh, I'm, just not gonna, I'm not bearing fruit at all, I'm not going to bear fruit at all. We throw up our hands, oh, I'm never going to change, right? So let, let, let's just at least leave the door open to the potential of bearing fruit because of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Have a look at that verse, Galatians 2 verse 20. Paul says there, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You see what Paul's saying happens when someone becomes a Christian. 
I think sometimes we think when we become a Christian, it's like the slate has been wiped clean, and it has. That's a wonderful thing to have our sins wiped away. We sometimes think it's about escaping God's judgment. And that's also true. We do indeed escape God's judgment or it's about following a new set of teachings. Well, of course, that's true. We're following a new master, our Lord Jesus. He does have a new set of teachings. Or or is it about embracing a new mindset about life? Well, it is that. right? Being a Christian uh, is really an all-encompassing worldview. But it's not just those things, is it? What Paul's saying here is that becoming a Christian is about having the resurrection power of Jesus at work in your life. There's a fundamental spiritual change that's happened. Have a look there. Have a look at the verse again. Paul's saying that spiritually speaking, the old Paul has died. The old Paul that was primarily driven by himself and his own selfish desires, driven by what he wanted, his will, his dreams, his ambitions, Paul says that Paul was crucified with Christ when he put his faith in the Lord Jesus. And notice that it's not just that the old Paul's been replaced with a new Paul. That's that's also often how we think. But Paul says here that the old Paul has been replaced with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Paul says. By the power of his spirit, God, Christ himself has come to live in Paul. Now, of course, Paul goes on in the rest of the verse to say the life I now live. It's not like he's saying he's not living at all, but he's saying that his life is now animated by a new power. The resurrection power of the Lord Jesus is at work in his life. And that's why there's real potential for bearing fruit. Not because you are particularly powerful or I'm particularly powerful, but because Christ is particularly powerful. And so we should never get overly discouraged about the potential for bearing fruit. That's the first point. The second thing is that when we flick over to Galatians 5, uh, despite this new power being at work in our life, it's really clear that bearing fruit is going to be a battle. It's going to be a real struggle. Look there in verse 17, Galatians 5 verse 17. Uh, Paul says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, Paul says so that you are not to do whatever you want. So so bearing the fruit of the Spirit is always going to be a massive battle, a a struggle. It's like there's this civil war raging inside of each and every Christian. Uh, The two sides of the battle are uh, what Paul calls the flesh and the Spirit. The the flesh uh, is, of course, who we are by natural birth. But all of us, by default, are sinners, Right, that, that means that uh, the, the kind of default, you know, if you get a computer, it usually has its default settings. Right? The default settings of the human heart are set towards self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness, rather than other person-centeredness, which is why with my children, uh, we have to teach them how to share, but we don't have to teach them how to be selfish. I've never uh, gone to a children's bookshop and, uh, and looked for a book which is trying to teach children how to be selfish. You just don't come across such a book because that comes naturally to us. That's the sinful flesh. It's our self-centeredness. Oh, on the other hand, there's the spirit, which is who we are by spiritual birth. 
Right? This is uh, by the power of His Spirit. God has given us new life. Where we're born again, uh, and so we've got these two powers at work within us: uh, the, the the old power of the flesh and the new power of the Spirit. And throughout the Christian life, there will always be a constant struggle between those two powers. Now, that's important because I think some Christians get really discouraged when they feel like they're battling in the Christian life. You get discouraged because of the constant struggle. But in, in reality, the fact that you're having any struggle at all is a sign that God's Spirit is at work in your life, isn't it? Otherwise, you'd just have the flesh, just going after the, the, the passions and desires of the flesh, as we'll see later on. But what you have is struggle. That's the absolute norm of the Christian life. And so you should be thankful for the struggle, although it's hard sometimes, right? You'd like to be winning a bit more often, I understand that. But the struggle is actually a real sign of God's Spirit at work in your life. So there's real potential for bearing fruit, uh, but that fruit is going to come in the context of struggle. And so having talked about the two aspects of that struggle, the, the, the flesh and the spirit, uh, look here in verses 19 to 21, uh, Paul unpacks what he calls the acts of the flesh. He's like, how exactly do we see the flesh? Like put your, if you get an x-ray at the hospital, uh, they don't go, oh, there's your heart, there's your liver, and there's your flesh. You know? like the, it doesn't come up like that. This is a kind of a spiritual thing. But how does it manifest? It's the acts of the flesh. Look in verse 19. Uh, the acts of the flesh, Paul says, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I want you to know, Paul, I, I warn you, Paul says, as I did before, uh, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, perhaps you'll be thankful that uh, we're not going to spend the next half an hour going laboriously through each of those sins and kind of drilling down on them. Uh, but how, how exactly should we kind of unpack this list? Oh, well, in broad terms, I think there are seven sins in this list that are probably stereotypically sins of rebellious people. Or people that, that, that might openly say, I'm rejecting God and his ways. Right, seven sins that are, that are perhaps in that camp, and eight sins uh, that could equally refer to religious people, right, people who, who are at least on the surface appear to be following God and his ways. Now, I think that's important to remember, but because uh, I reckon when we hear the phrase, acts of the flesh, we tend to think about some of these sins and not others. Isn't that true? Like, for example, uh, look, at there are three words in this list uh, that have to do with sex. Either there's sexual immorality, there's impurity, and there's debauchery. Right? All of those words are to do with sex being out of control. And, of course, if you're here and perhaps you haven't been to church very often or you're not a Christian, uh, you might hear that and you think, that's exactly what I thought. You know, Christians hate sex, God hates sex. Oh, I'd expect those things to be in a list of the acts of the flesh, which, is, of course, is not true. Like, God created sex. It's a good gift to be used within the confines that God uh, blesses its use within. Uh, but it is true that, that, that uh, those are, are, are sins that we might expect to appear in such a list. And then there's the ones that are about alcohol, you know, drunkenness, orgies. 
right, both to, to do with alcohol being out of control. And once again, you might think, well, yeah, sure, that's what I'd expect. You know, Christians aren't into having fun, uh, anti-pleasure, you know, they'd be anti-alcohol as well. Uh, but then there's, other, there's a whole lot of other things here, isn't there? Well, what about selfish ambition or envy, jealousy, hatred, fits of rage, dissensions? Isn't it true that historically the church has been full of those things? I mean, not that the other things I've mentioned haven't been in the church. But these sort of things are rife in the church. People have left the church because of these things. Like religious people, rebellious people are equally vulnerable to some of these things. Clearly, I, I think Paul's not picking on rebellious people here, uh, kind of openly rebellious people, he's saying, and outwardly religious people are both equally vulnerable to this, these acts of the flesh. It's only people who've been genuinely born again by the power of the Spirit that can have any hope of bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Otherwise, religious or rebellious, we're all vulnerable to these sins, to these acts of the flesh. And so praise God for the power of the Spirit that's at work in the life of those who've come to trust in the Lord Jesus and enables us to bear at least some of the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul lists in verses 22 to 23. The contrast to the acts of the flesh are these fruit of the Spirit. Have a look at it from verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, in contrast to the acts of the flesh, I am going to take a, a few moments to work through uh, the different aspects of this fruit of the Spirit. As I do that, I just would like you to maybe take a look at your own life. It's a, how... How am I going bearing this fruit of the Spirit? If I'm a Christian, I trust in Christ, I'm filled with His Spirit. How am I going bearing this fruit of the Spirit? Consider love, for example. I found a a definition of love during the week. I'll read it out. I think it's somewhat helpful. It says, Love uh, is opening yourself up to God or to another person and serving them because of the intrinsic value of who they are. Loving and serving someone because of the intrinsic value of who they are. That's different. It is different to serving someone because you can use them to achieve what you want. That's not really loving someone because of the intrinsic value of who they are or kind of manipulating someone to get what you want. This is loving, loving someone. It is to serve someone because of the intrinsic value of who they are. Not treating people as a means to an end, but as a wonderful end in themselves. How can I serve this person in this moment? That's love. That's love. And then there's joy, which is really similar in that it's delighting in someone else, particularly delighting in God, because of the intrinsic value of who he is. Not delighting in God because he gives you all the blessings that you want all the time but delighting in God because of who he is. I think the reality is everyone feels happy when their life's going well, whether you're a Christian or not, that's the case. That's not what Paul's talking about when he talks about joy here. It's a little bit different to happiness. 
Right, joy uh, is something, like Paul says in Philippians, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And he can say that because uh, for a Christian, joy is something they experience. Uh, they can experience uh, no matter how the circumstances of their life are going. Because for the Christian, their joy is not uh, primarily attached to the circumstances of their life, which uh, of course are changing all the time, but attached to their relationship with God. Right? God who never changes. And so the Christian who's filled with God's Spirit can indeed rejoice in the Lord always. Can experience this joy. I wonder how you go with that. Presbyterians are not known for their joy in the Lord. Sadly, it's a fruit of the Spirit. And there's peace. A peace which which is a deep trust that God is in control. A deep knowledge that God knows better than me, that God is wiser than me, that my God is working all things for my good, even if I can't see how he's doing that. He's making me more like his son. And so I can rest. I can be at peace. Forbearance. It's a word we probably don't use very much these days, forbearance. It's a little bit similar to patience. It's about being slow to judge and quick to forgive. Uh, Sometimes someone will sin against you, and rather than giving them some time to say sorry... Uh, your, imp- your sort of Im- instinct might be to come down on them like a ton of bricks. Right? That's not showing forbearance. It's not giving p- space for people to say sorry. Right? Forbearance al- allows people time. Shows a bit of grace, a bit of patience. Has a long fuse rather than a short fuse. You know? uh, and there's kindness. A kindness, I, I think... Often we don't quite understand kindness. In Matthew chapter 11, I'll, I'll talk, to about, talk about it a little bit in the Lord's Supper later on, but Jesus says, uh, being yoked to me, right, being in, in relationship with me, Jesus says, uh, is easy. His yoke is easy, uh, and that word easy is kind. What's he saying? He's saying that being in relationship with me will lift burdens off you rather than place burdens on you. That's what he's saying. Yoke yourself to me, and it'll be liberating. It'll lift burdens off you. And now that's what it's like when you spend time with someone who's really kind. You, you, you spend half an hour with them, five minutes with them. Uh, by the time that interaction's finished, you, you feel like some burdens have been lifted off you. That's what it means to, to enter a conversation, an interaction, and think, how can I be kind to this person? You, you're thinking, how can I lift burdens off of this person? That's kindness. And then there's goodness, uh, which is about treating people generously. It's really the opposite of the envious person in the acts of the flesh. The envious person is kind of so mean-spirited that any time they see someone else succeeding in life, they just want to bring them down a peg or two. That's envy. It's not a generous spirit. It's a harsh spirit. A goodness in your spirit, a generous spirit, is seeing people having success or kicking goals and you cheer them on. You want the blessing for them, prosperity for them. Not great at that, Australians. You know, we prefer to cut people down if they're doing a good job. Our faithfulness uh, is about being wholehearted in your commitments, in your promises. As far as you can, being someone whose yes is your yes and your no is your no. Which is tough for a generation that's grown up with social media. Uh, we, uh, the most popular button on the event is maybe. 
you know, it's interested. I don't, want to, I don't want to nail my colours to the mast. Now, maybe that's why sometimes you don't want to say yes and then be constantly pulling out. Like that's, that's even worse. But faithfulness is going, no, I think I can do that. I'm going to lock it in and I'll be there. Uh, and there's gentleness, uh, which I think a better translation is probably humility. Uh, I think sometimes we struggle with the, the concept of humility because we think that it's saying we've got to be really down on ourselves. I'm so humble because I don't like myself very much. But that's not what humility is. Humility uh, is more about not being absorbed with yourself, not thinking about yourself all the time. You think kind of Philippians chapter 2, where where Paul holds up Christ as the ultimate example of humility. It's because he did not consider his own interests, but the interests of others. Uh, So the humble person is the person who walks into church and they think, who is it that I can serve? Well, they're not kind of consumed with themselves, but with what they can do to love and serve their brothers and sisters, or the new person, or the person who's on the fringe. Well, that's the humble person. And finally, there's self-control. A self-control is the ability to say or do the right thing, rather than just the instinctive thing. Maybe that's a definition. We've all got impulses and instincts that that kind of come naturally out of us, but self-control is the ability to kind of curb some of those things and think, what's the the right or godly thing to say or do in this circumstance? So that's the fruit of the Spirit. I wonder how you're going bearing that fruit as you take a look at your life. Because Paul is saying that if you're a Christian who, who, who's filled with the Spirit of God, uh, you will be bearing this fruit. You will. Right? No, not because you're trying really hard to be a good person, but because the power of God's Spirit is at work in your life. Uh, a, a good story about this kind of the certainty of bearing fruit I heard during the week. Uh, a British minister once, uh, his name was G. Campbell Morgan. I'm sure you all know him well, but it's a story that counts, not the name of the guy uh, so much. But uh, the story is that he was walking through a, a cemetery in Italy and he saw a, a, ma- a kind of gravestone, a massive marble slab, uh, and up, right up through the middle was an oak tree, like split the, the marble slab in two. And he went and spoke to the person who was, I don't know what you call, like someone who's kind of looking after the, the graveyard. I don't think it was a grave digger, but someone else. He went and spoke to them. So, oh, what's the story with this marble slab? How, how did this tree kind of split it in two? And apparently, uh, uh, several centuries before that, uh, a kind of an acorn had fallen from a neighbouring tree into a tiny crack in the marble slab. And then over centuries... That acorn had, had kind of sprouted and obviously put down roots and eventually had grown uh, to such an extent that it actually split the marble slab apart. And that's what it's like when the seed of God's spirit is sown in the life of a Christian. Like God sows his spirit in, into our hard hearts and over time it, 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 it'll bear fruit. It might not happen as quickly as we like, but over time it'll split our hard hearts apart and bear the fruit of the Spirit. It will bear this fruit. It's certain. But what does that process of bearing fruit look like? Oh, what's the kind of nature of bearing fruit? 
But uh, this fruit bearing is certain in the life of a Christian, but, but what is it going to look like? Uh, I want to suggest three things uh, about the nature of bearing fruit. Uh, the first is that bearing fruit is always gradual. Uh, that's important. Uh, I, I've not uh, spent much time on an orchard, but I have been on an orchard a couple of times. And uh, you know, you sit there and you look at the trees, and they don't seem to be bearing much fruit. You, know, you look there for, for six minutes or, or six days, or maybe if six months, you, you might start to see some fruit. But that's the nature of fruit trees, isn't it? Often, th- there's not a whole lot happening. And that's how we feel as Christians often, isn't it? Like, like I, I, I'm sure God's doing something. But we just can't tell, right? Because the, the process of bearing fruit is so gradual that, that, that we just can't perceive it. And sometimes, of course, there'll be a, a particular season of fruit bearing. And we'll look, or, or even in the moment we can't see it, but we look back and we think, actually, that was a real season of bearing fruit. I, I can see what was doing there, uh, what God was doing there. Uh, but often in the moment, we, we, just, we just don't know how much we're bearing fruit but because the process of bearing fruit is so gradual. So please be encouraged by that in a way, just to kind of say, if you can't discern much bearing of fruit, that's just normal. That's part of being a Christian. Often it's not clear. Uh, fruit bearing is gradual. Uh, also, fruit bearing is internal. Uh, of course, all these characteristics kind of manifest on the outside, but they are to do with who you are rather than what you do. You notice that. They're character traits. And I think that's important because... Uh, it does highlight a bit of a difference between those who might be perhaps churched a bit or, or just outwardly a bit religious and those who are genuinely filled with God's Spirit. So often, uh, the religious person uh, will understand the fruit of the Spirit to be changed behaviour on the outside or just doing lots of different things. Uh, and so they'll do lots of good things, whether it be going to church or, or kind of serving in particular ways or, or, or giving in particular ways. Uh, and then they'll say, well, look, look, there's the fruit of the Spirit. But the reality is they're not really being changed on the inside. Lots of change in what they're doing, but not much change in who they are. Right, Paul's saying here that the fruit of the Spirit, is, it brings internal growth. Internal growth that's generated by God's Spirit, transformed character primarily. Of course, that manifests in particular deeds. That's important. The fruit of the Spirit is, is gradual, it's internal. And the third thing is the fruit of the Spirit is symmetrical. Have a look in, in verse uh, 22 again. You notice in verse 22 that Paul uh, refers to the fruit of the Spirit, right? Just singular, one fruit. But then he goes, is, and lists all these different things. So like we imagine, I mean, Adam's question before, what fruit would you like to bear? And you might picture yourself with lots of different bits of fruit hanging off you. You know, like if you were to kind of literalize that. Kind of like but Paul's saying that this is one fruit with all these different characteristics to it. Right? A little bit like a single diamond with lots of different wonderful facets, different angles that you could look at it from. And that's important but because uh, all of these uh, different characteristics in the life of a Christian uh, grow together. They, they kind of exist together, not necessarily at the same rate, I'm not saying that, but they do grow together, uh, which is particularly helpful for discerning the difference between genuine fruit of the Spirit and pseudo-fruit. For example, I know lots of very proud people 
who seem to be really at peace in life. So you go, oh, look, they've got such fruit of the Spirit. They're, they're really at peace. But they're actually at peace because they're shaking their fist at God and, and trampling all over, all over other people in their pride. Right? That's not fruit of the Spirit, right? because the fruit of the Spirit grows together, you see. You have, uh, you have the fruit of peace growing alongside the fruit of gentleness or humility. It's the same with, with uh, for example, uh, the fruit of self-control and humility. Uh, this is true, maybe it's true for some women as well, but uh, I think in, in our culture, often uh, young boys and into adolescence, they get the message somehow uh, that real men don't cry. Yeah, you get this message. Uh, and so lots of, lots of grown men... Uh, show incredible self-control by not crying. What's the motivation for that? Pride. Typically, I've got to to have a stiff upper lip, I must not cry because I don't want to lose face in front of other people. That's not self-control. It's not self-control from the Spirit. But because the fruit of the Spirit come together, they grow together, you see. You can chase that up more. Jonathan Edwards, uh, you can Google it. He has a great article uh, tracing how the the fruit of the Spirit grow together. So the fruit of the Spirit, the the nature of uh, growth in fruit is that it's gradual, it's internal, and it's symmetrical. Still, still we're left with the same problem at the start, aren't we? Which is that lots of us aren't, at least we don't perceive ourselves to be bearing much fruit. Or, or not as much as we'd like. And so I wanted to finish by talking about the power of bearing fruit. Oh, what's the key? Is there anything that we can do to actually see more of the fruit of the Spirit in our life? Or is it just kind of like hands off, God's going to do his thing, the seed of the Spirit's there, and fruit will pop out at, at the rate that God determines. Right? Is there anything we can do? I think there is. I think the power of the Spirit is, in a sense, released and we bear more fruit as we do two things. We see that in this passage. Two things. The first is crucify the flesh. Well, that sounds a bit odd, but look in verse 24. Uh, Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh uh, with its passions and desires. So what does it mean to crucify the passions and desires of the flesh? Well, what does that actually mean? Because isn't it true that, that all of us have good desires for the things of this world? Well, that's true. We've got perfectly uh, good and normal desires for the things of this world. But when Paul says, uh, when he speaks about the passions and desires of the flesh, uh, he's, talking about, uh, he's talking about disordered desires. The sort of things we saw in the acts of the flesh, right? Desires for, for good things that have just gotten way out of control. And to the extent that you might say that we're treating the good things of this world as if they were gods. Running after the good things in this world uh, as if they might actually save us. They might give us the, the freedom and, and blessing and purpose that we've always longed for. And Paul's saying that power of the Spirit comes in your life when you start crucifying those desires they have been crucified in christ and we've got to kind of keep crucifying them what are these passions and desires for for me i see in my own life uh, far and away the biggest one is that i'm i'm a people pleaser i want people to like me 
And on one level, that's quite a normal desire. I think most human beings, unless you've got some sort of weird pathology, uh, most human beings actually want other people to like them. Maybe not everyone. Some people we kind of wear as a badge of honour if they don't like us. But for the most part, it's quite a normal desire uh, to want people to like us. But uh, it becomes a bit disordered when you start thinking, I've really got to do whatever it takes to get these people to be happy with me. To get this person to be happy with me. But what happens then? Whatever it takes leads to sacrifices to the God of people-pleasing, to the God of approval-seeking. What do you sacrifice? You, you might sacrifice some of your morals. You think, well, they're going to be more happy if I kind of just err a little bit in terms of this morality. So I'll just kind of sacrifice a bit of that. Sacrifice some relationships, right? Because it's going to really please this person uh, if, if, I, if I relate to them. But of course, I know that the consequence of that is that this relationship's going to suffer and this relationship's going to suffer and this relationship. But I'm okay with that because it's this person's approval that I really want. You might sacrifice some of your convictions, what you think is important in life. Because you just want to keep as many people happy as possible. For you, it might not be approval. It might be uh, maximising security in this world or a sense of comfort or, or a sense of control, whatever it is. Uh, we, all, uh, we all experience this, I think. And Paul's saying if we want to experience more of the power of, uh, of the Spirit in our lives, more, more power to bear fruit, uh, we've got to find a way of, of putting these over-desires, these disordered desires to, to death, to crucify them. How do we do that? I think... It's by looking at our disordered desires, uh, in a sense, at the foot of the cross, in light of the cross. If you can imagine, you take your disordered desires for approval or comfort or security, you you take them to the foot of the cross, uh, and what does Jesus uh, crucified on the cross uh, tell you? It tells you that Christ had to die to save you. It's a fundamental truth. And so when you look at your disordered desires in light of the cross, you might ask yourself, why am I trying to save myself by getting approval or comfort and security when the cross tells me I just can't save myself that way? But I have to be saved through Jesus and him alone. So why run after all these other gods as if they might save me? Why enslave myself to them? Offering sacrifices at the altar of approval and comfort and security, you see. Why do that? The cross tells you it's silly. Uh, the cross also tells you that Christ was willing to die to save you. Not just that he had to, but he was willing to. Uh, which should lead you to ask the question, why would you give your life pursuing uh, the gods of this world, approval, comfort, wealth, status, security? Why would you pursue those gods that demand constant sacrifices from you when you could spend your life pursuing the God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who made the ultimate sacrifice for you. These gods say you must. Christ says, I will. I will give my life for you. Why would you pursue those gods, those demanding gods, who demand constant sacrifices from you when you could pursue the one God who made the ultimate sacrifice for you? See, I think it's as we take uh, these kind of disordered desires to the foot of the cross, they actually lose a bit of their power. You start to see them for what they really are. They're the ultimate deception. They promise a whole lot and they deliver very little. And once you see that, you're able to leave them at the cross, crucify them, nailing them, increasingly able to leave them behind. 
And so that's the first part. Right? Bearing fruit happens uh, as we crucify the desires of the flesh. And second, uh, it comes as we walk by God's Spirit. Look in verse 16. Uh, there are a few places, this idea. Verse 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, uh, but if you are led by the Spirit... Uh, you are not under the law. And verse 25, right at the end of the passage, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So all, all these pictures of being walking with or being led by or, or living by the Spirit, uh, what does it look like, though, to walk by the Spirit? Because Paul says, verse uh, 16, walk by the Spirit uh, so that uh, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. What does it look like to walk by the Spirit? Well, look in verse 17. Paul says there, uh, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Now, I think we all know instinctively that our flesh has desires. Often we're quite aware, aware of those things. Uh, we know uh, that, we have, uh, that we have lusts, we have longings uh, that are forbidden, for example. And so we're quite familiar with, with the, the fact that our flesh has desires, but here Paul's saying in verse 17 that the spirit also has desires. You see that? That the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. Well, what is it that the spirit desires? Well, maybe Adam covered this in the first week. I'm not quite sure. But if you've got a Bible, uh, flick to uh, John chapter 16, verse, uh, verses 13 and 14. What is it that the spirit desires? John 16, verses 13 and 14. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples uh, about uh, the spirit that he's going to send, uh, who's going to come. And in verse 13, he says, uh, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, uh, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. Uh, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Uh, and this is particularly important. Verse 14, what's the spirit going to do? Excuse me. What's the spirit going to do? He will glorify me. Because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So what's the, the all-consuming desire of the Spirit? What does the Spirit want to do? The Spirit wants to glorify Christ. The Spirit wants uh, to put the spotlight on Christ, to put Christ's name up in lights. The Spirit is not primarily, it, the Spirit rarely says, look at me, look at me. Right? The Spirit nearly always says, look at Christ. Look at what Christ has done for you. Look at who Christ is. Look at him lifted up on the cross for your sins. That, that's the role of the Spirit, is to glorify Christ. And so to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to keep in step by the Spirit, is to live a life where your kind of all-consuming desire is also to glorify Christ. Then you're in sync with the Spirit. When your heart is, is captured by the wonder and beauty and, and glory of Christ, and this is the thing, the more your heart is led by the Spirit to, to worship and love and glorify Christ, uh, the less you'll follow the disordered desires of your flesh. Because you're, the, the more you love Christ, the less you'll love sin. The more you long for Christ, the less you'll long for sin. You see, it's about replacing. This is our trouble. We often say no to sin, but we never replace sin with a new affection, a new love, a new desire. 
And that's the work of the Spirit, that the Spirit lifts our heart to Christ so that our hearts would be full of the wonder of Christ, full of love for Christ, full of the glory of who He is and what He's done for us. And so Paul's saying that the more, uh, the more that the Spirit does this work in your, in your life, uh, the more you'll be able to turn away from sin and bear this fruit of the Spirit. Or stronger than that, the more you'll be able to put death to sin and bear this fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you uh, uh, for this, your word. Uh, we thank you for the incredible, um, the incredible news that when we uh, become Christians, uh, it's not just that we're forgiven, uh, it's not just that uh, we're redeemed, uh, but that you actually uh, fill us with your Spirit. Uh, and in so doing, the resurrection power of Christ is alive and at work in our hearts. Uh, please encourage us in that, Father, and help us uh, not to close the door on the idea of bearing fruit. I particularly pray, Father, that uh, this night that we would see uh, our disordered desires for what they are, as we uh, look at them in light of the cross. And I pray that you would, uh, by the power of your Spirit, uh, lift our hearts and minds uh, to our Lord Jesus afresh, uh, that we would be uh, truly captivated by him and want to live for him, uh, just as the Spirit uh, wants to put the spotlight on Christ and make his name great. I pray that that would be true of our hearts too. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.